This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, and a big welcome back to our first Money and Markets of 2019. We're excited to be back to be talking about personal finance and investing issues. I'm Laura Suter, and I'm joined by Dan from Shares. Hi. For our first episode of the year, we're going to look at how to get into investing for the first time, how you can use cashback websites to save for your children's future, and why the way your financial advisor charges you might be changing. So this week, we're joined by Tom from AJ Bell. Hello. So you might have got some Christmas money that you want to save, or you might have decided that this year is going to be the one where you finally set up an investment account and put away some money. So we've had an email from a listener saying that they're new to investing, not great with figures, have some savings, but have a lot of enthusiasm. And they want to know how to get started with investing. So Dan, can you offer any words of wisdom for this listener? Definitely. So I think the first thing you need to think about is um, what? why are you investing? Are you, are you sort of looking for short-term gains? Are you quite sort of excited about making a bit of money on the side? Or actually, are you starting to, you, know, you a desire to put some money away to for the longer term, you know, whether that's to buy um a house in the future or, or say you've got children's education to think about in the future or even for retirement um, now these things matter because I think if you're only looking for sort of short term uh, quick gains you, you could sort of classify yourself as a trader mm. um, longer term more sort of perhaps considered thought is, is sort of investing so I know when I first started in journalism um, I was asked to write an article about trading and I was given sort of uh, £10,000 of sort of play free money um, and I was right about my experience and, and, and I, I actually blew it all in a day, lost the whole lot. Yeah. <laughs> wow, yeah. that's impressive. Yeah. I hope your investing skills have got better over yeah. the years. Yeah. Well, this is it because I, I, I was had the sort of trading mentality. I was doing, I was constantly, I was buying gold and then the next minute I was selling gold and then do something else. I kept, I thought it was all about fast, fast, fast and yeah. of course it was, it was absolutely wrong and, I, you know, and then I wrote this article saying like what what shambles I've been um, and I learned from that and then so then actually a year later there was a competition amongst some journalists um, to do trading it and so actually what I did was I, I looked to see who was reporting and I picked some high quality companies I thought might have a good chance of issuing some decent results um, I put my trades on those and I did nothing absolutely nothing for two weeks and I could see all, you get those emails updates mm-hmm. people saying they've done this and this I did I did nothing and guess what I won yeah um, and so it, the mindset was I was thinking more about the long term, not not simply about just that one off quick gain. So really, if you, so first first stage, just think about what why you want to invest. Um, the second is sort of picking the investments. But of course, you've got to match this to your um, risk profile. I mean, that, that sounds sort of quite serious, doesn't it? But you know, what it actually meaning is like, are you prepared to buy something and accept that if you lose all your money, it's not going to change your life? So um, if you're really cautious and a bit nervous about stuff, you should pick kind of boring things. Um, if you've got loads of money, um, you're happy to accept that things can either go brilliantly or completely wrong, then you know, therefore you would have a uh, be classified as having a higher risk appetite. And I think that's probably a really important thing because I think most people think, oh yeah, I want to go into something that's going to make me loads and loads of money and I, don't, I can I can handle that high risk level and, and I've got the stomach for it. But then when it actually comes to market falls like we've seen recently, um, it turns out lots of people don't quite have that risk tolerance that they thought they did and they don't have that ability to kind of block off what's happening in their investment account and leave it there for the long term. So 
I think sometimes people are a bit unrealistic maybe about their risk tolerance and they need to ask themselves some questions. And there are some kind of online questionnaires that you can do that help guide you through that and give you scenarios of if this happened or if your investment fell by this amount, how would you feel to help you kind of guide through to what a realistic risk tolerance is? No, I think that's, a, that's an excellent point. Um, I think that people should only look at stuff that they understand. Um, so, so, for example, if, you, if you've got a hobby and you like, say, fixing cars, you might actually be quite comfortable comfortable reading um, how an engineering business works mm. and therefore you might be comfortable sort of investing in that but um, if you're say you want to invest in a mining or oil and gas company and you have no idea what all those really complicated words are and all of these announcements like spudding and um, you know all sort of drill bit stuff um, I just cannot see the point in someone investing in this if you don't understand it it's just a, it's just a recipe for disaster so I think stick with what you know and what you're comfortable with to start with, um, and then you can just learn. You know, the, the investing is a learning process. Um, and no one should expect like really good um, returns instantly, unless they are just incredibly bright um, and, and or they, they've got lucky. And I think when you're talking about kind of working out why you're investing and how long for is really important. And I think sometimes it's good when you're starting out to write those things down so that then when you go back and check your investment portfolio every so often, you can go back to that original list and think, no, wait, I'm investing for 10 years or I'm investing for my retirement. And that kind of really refocuses you, particularly if markets have gone down a bit, stops you wanting to sell out. No, that's that's right. I mean, of course, the, if if you're um, if you really are not sure where to start, um, don't look at individual company shares. Look at funds because you, you're paying someone else to do the hard work. So funds are, um, you know, it's an, an, a person, asset manager will pick a portfolio could between anything between sort of say twenty and hundred different stocks or it could be bonds or, or, or gold in there. Um, they come under the name of funds or investment trusts or exchange traded funds. These are just, just different versions of it. But really you're, you're saying uh, I buy something and someone else is making the decisions. I just, um, I'm happy with the process that they say that they're doing. Um, you know, the idea of picking funds I think is perhaps one, something we'll do on a, on a different podcast. Um, but that's probably where I'd say that new people um, who are quite serious about investing or a bit cautious should perhaps look at that to start with. So, what, Laura, what was the first thing that you ever invested in? Um, well, my well, mine's a little bit of a cheat because my dad actually made the investment. So I was left some money when I was at the age of 10 and my dad put all of it, he was obviously had a very high risk tolerance, he put all of it into an emerging markets fund, um, which some would say is quite risky and, and foolish. But luckily the fund did well, so he's come out of it well. Um, and so I checked it yesterday actually, and I, I've since sold out of it, but during that time it's gone up 400%. Wow. So well done dad. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't give him any of the money, obviously. Yeah. Tom, <laughs> Tom have, you, have you made your, dipped your toe into the, the big investing world yet? Uh, yeah, I, so I, I, I invest in uh, some uh, multi-manager funds, so incredibly boring. My fir The first first thing I ever invested in, or the first thing that I considered to have been an investment was when I was in, uh, in secondary school. And so me and a couple of mates used to go to Morrison's and we'd buy big multi-bags of Haribo. I wouldn't recommend this as an investment strategy for anyone, <laughs> but you could buy these big multi-bags of Haribo. So I'd invest in that massive one, and then I'd get all, all the little ones out, and I'd flog them to anyone, everyone for a little extra profit. So that was my first my first investment oh. as an individual. I'm not regular carried... Alan Sugar, aren't you? <laughs> it's, it's, I'll tell you what, they went up by more than 400%. So uh, wow. I never okay. actually calculated. I just made that up. But... <laughs> 
<laughs> well, that's, I mean, that's, that's quite... So entrepreneurial Tom, um, sensible... Ne- never carried that on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. If only you'd invested that money in the fund that my dad oh. picked, together, we could have had such a bright future. Oh, if only we'd known each other all those years ago. <laughs> well, my first investment was in an, an underwater um, exploration company. That This sound is so exciting. I really loved stuff like Tintin as a child, and I, and I kind of mm. like this idea of adventure. So, so when I saw this company, it was like, they're going to look underwater to find shipwrecks to see if they've got lots of gold bullion on them. I thought, well... Surely that's that's got to be the start. How old were you at this point? Dad? I mean, yeah. imagine you had been like five or six no, investing on it, your own. I was I was in my twenties. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I put some. This is the first share I ever bought. They, they were on the AIM uh, junior market of the London Stock Exchange. Wow, you went risky. Yeah. yeah so I thought it sounded exciting. Um, uh, actually, you know, I went to see the company, and they had some really nice nautical maps on their wall, <laughs> <laughs> um, and and then they were quite good. And and they they were convinced that they'd found a shipwreck near Spain that had loads of silver and gold on it um, but actually it turned out that they were um, they kind of misled people and, and it was just some random boat it wasn't it was <laughs> it, it didn't have any gold on it but yeah. um, you know I, l- I learned a lesson then because I got I got caught up in the excitement of it yeah um, when I d- when really it was a business that didn't make any money um, I mean it probably you know, couldn't get any more high risk really could you yeah so, um, yeah so I've never got into picking individual companies yet I've always gone down the fund route but that's something myself and my partner are going to do this year is we're just going to put a bit of money into a pot and kind of just dip our toe into picking our own companies rather than getting the fund managers to do it almost almost kind of like a a game it's money that we're happy to happy to lose and we just want to see whether or not um our own choices match up to those of the of the uh of the professionals I think when you are investing, the other thing to think about is um, have have the right expectation of how much money mm. you are actually going to make. Because I think some people go into it thinking that they perhaps will do what's happened with Laura and make 100, 400% um, <laughs> over time. Or, or, or you know, individual companies, they, they people think that they can make that yeah. in a year. It, very rarely can you make it into, into that. Studies have shown that this is between 1900 and 2017, you would have made... An annual return of 5.5% on, on buying shares, also known as equities. And that's sort of adjusted for inflation and assuming okay. any, any dividends are reinvested. So, so 5.5% from the stock market, um, roughly about 1.2% from cash. So you can see the appeal in the stock market. You know, you're getting a better return. But um, you know, th- the thing is, that when investing, just remember you can lose money mm. as well as making money. And um, people have been enjoying... A, a rising stock market for ten years up until last year, and then it, you know more recently it's been a bit more difficult. But it's been that wake up call, hasn't it? That um, it's hard out there. Yeah, and I I actually had um, I'm going to name and shame my husband here, um, but I actually <laughs> had a call from my husband this morning. So he has had his pension invested pretty much since the start of this bull market, and he um, checked his pension account this morning, and it's obviously posted losses for this year so he called me up and said I, I don't I think I maybe I should just go everything to cash if we're gonna yeah. or go into hit a recession he was the classic example of someone who's got used to having regular returns each year has now seen his pot fall in size and has panicked luckily I talked him down from yeah. the ledge but <laughs> <laughs> and, and so the next thing to think about if you're new to investing is how much money to actually put in um, I've seen 
several examples of people from my friends, they bought one share, let's say it cost £5, and it cost them £10 to buy it, mm. so they've spent £15. Um, so immediately, their £15 um, has fallen by 66% in value to £5, so that's the value of the thing. And if they wanted to sell it, it would cost them another 10 quid to sell. <laughs> and so they, basically, they've lost, they yeah. instantly lost everything. Mm. Um, people forget it costs lots of money to do to buy and to sell with investing but not lots of money it just costs money to do it um and you're probably better off i mean this is what everyone's personal circumstances different but in my opinion i think you're better off waiting until you've got um a bigger sum of money say um hun- you know, a couple hundred pounds before you even start thinking about it with individual company shares mm. now f- buying funds is a little bit cheaper and you could probably do it for a lower amount of money um but it, it's just those ideas that that just think about the costs, not simply about what it costs to um, you know, the, the price of an individual share. And I think one of the other tips that I'd give that I'm going to try and practice what I preach this year is to set up regular investments. So I've definitely been guilty in the past of um, either when it comes to tax year end or when I've got a bit of money putting it into my investment account and investing at that point, when actually if I had a regular amount mm. going into my account each month, A, I'd probably end up saving more over the year and B, you end up kind of buying funds at regular points rather than putting all your money into the market at one point. Yeah. So I think learn from your mistakes as well. Don't get, don't panic if things go wrong. Um, like Laura said, just if you write things down as you go along, you just go back to say, well, why did I buy it in the first place? What's happened? Um, and should I think about something a bit differently next time I do it? And don't judge your success on one day or one month. Mm. Uh, I see people on Twitter who post the value of their portfolio and how much has gone up or down every single day. And it's, it, it, Puts you in the wrong mindset. Yeah. Investing is a long-term game. So, how often, how often would you check your uh, portfolio? I think I would probably check it um, maybe six months at the most, but probably a, you should look at it about w- once a year. If, yeah. if that's if you're thinking you're putting it away for a longer term. Mm. Now, obviously, say if you're investing for something and you're looking for that pot of money within a shorter period of time, mm. um, then I perhaps understand um, if you're a bit more nervous. And uh, individual company shares, you may want to look at them a bit more. Yeah. Um, regularly but funds guy you just don't need to you don't need to look at them it's so difficult yeah. because because it's been um, such a long bull market as well the temptation because people have been seeing good news so often the temptation to check on your on your computer or on your mobile phone or whatever every day it'll be huge for lots of people and clearly the danger there is that you check things go badly and as laura said earlier you end up shifting your money from one thing to another when that might not be the best thing for you mm. so i think obviously this is a huge topic mm. how to invest and we will come back to it on regular occasions this year uh, and and beyond with the podcast so do keep writing in if there's something specific you want us to do um just get in touch and and we'll certainly have think about doing it so now away from investments and into pensions very small cheer there uh so tom (laughs) what's the change this week that could mean a a big change to the way your advisor charges you so it's it's not a change that's definitely coming down the track. So um, the Work and Pensions Committee, so this is one of those cross-party groups of MPs, is um, looking at something called contingent charging. Okay, which already... I've lost you already. already lost Can you <laughs> explain what contingent what, what, charging what are those is? those awful terms. I'm not sure if it's been coined by the FCA or by the industry, but it exists as a term. So this is where if you're going to transfer from a defined benefit pension scheme, so a pension scheme that pays you a guaranteed income from a set, 
date based on how long you've worked at a company, um, then uh, there's there's two different ways that you could be charged for that transfer advice if you went to an advisor before transferring. Um, so one way is the ch- advisor could charge you an upfront fee. So you just pay a cash amount of £1,000, £1,500, however much it is. Or it could be a charge that's contingent on you moving your money from that defined benefit scheme into a defined contribution scheme. So a scheme like a SIP, for example. Um, and so the concern around contingent charging, which is what the Work and Pensions Committee is looking at at the moment, is that advisors might be tempted to advise people to move from a DB scheme, which which is a very valuable guarantee that aren't generally, aren't generally offered in the private sector anymore because they are so valuable and therefore costly for companies to uh, to sponsor. The, the danger is that advisors will be tempted to shift to advise people to move over into a defined contribution scheme, even when that might not be in their best interest. So there's a, a clear potential conflict of interest there because the advisor doesn't get paid any money unless you move your your fund from a DB scheme to a DC scheme. Um, Now, whether or not the regulator will do anything about this is another question. So we've got a committee looking at the issue. They've already said before that they they think this should be banned, but the FCA said we need more evidence of poor behaviour, so they're looking into that now. But whether or not um, that's a way of charging that's going to be uh, outlawed altogether is is one we'll have to keep an eye out for. But what's the argument for contingent charging? Why would you opt for that rather than just an upfront charge? So because you may, so you wouldn't have to pay any money for the advice if you didn't move. So a lot of people, uh, certainly when I've spoken at events, some of the frustration that um, I've had from people who've come to me um, come to me afterwards was a they've struggled to be to, so people who want to transfer from a defined benefit scheme. Um, a, they struggle to find an advisor who will take their case on because anyone who's got who wants to transfer from a defined benefit scheme that's worth £30,000 or more has to take advice. That's in the law. So they struggle to find an advisor. And then when they do find an advisor, what often happens is if they don't have a contingent charging model, so they just charge a fee, then they might end up paying £1,000, £1,500, possibly even more than that for the advice. And then the advice will be not to transfer. Now, that is probably that will that is the, that advisor's best recommendation based on their experience and their expertise, and that could be the best bit of advice you ever get actually to not move your money from the defined benefit scheme because it's so valuable. But for a lot of people, that can be frustrating because they're spending lots of money on some advice and ultimately they're staying exactly where they are and they might for their own personal reasons want to move from a db scheme to a dc scheme even if the advisor doesn't think that's in their best interest so if you go down a contingent charging route then you don't pay anything unless you move your money over so for someone who's going down that route they may think that it's better for them um to to not pay a fee for not doing anything essentially and do you think this is like if if you if you get your boiler fixed or you need mm. it fixed, you get someone to give you a quote and say what's wrong. And um, you then make that decision, don't you, whether you're going to get it um, fixed or, or your car, you need something done with it. You, you get a, sort of a, a fee, a no fee quote, isn't it? Do you think people just expect that's what happens in life now? You, you um, Unless they get the yeah. answer that they want to. Yeah. I think, I think a lot so I think a lot a lot of people are um uh, are, are incredibly frustrated first of all that they have to take financial advice so that so that so people understandably because that was the message that was given at the when the pension freedoms were, were launched in um in 2015 was this is your money you can do what you want with it but there's this big caveat that if you've got a defined benefit pension scheme worth 30,000 pounds or more then you have to take professional advice 
before you do it and then being told that you have to pay a load of money for that advice when in your head you've decided you want to make this move you might decide that the flexibility of defined contribution pensions is more for you versus the relative inflexibility of defined benefit pensions you might decide that you want to pass on money to loved ones which can be advantageous in defined contribution schemes versus defined benefit schemes or whatever it may be um, I think uh, uh, for, for a lot of people the frustration is that they've made that decision and it's it can be difficult and expensive to to move their money over after they've made that decision and for some people it's been impossible and is there any indication of when a firm decision is going to be made on so, this contingency no no so the, so the financial conduct authority which will ultimately be in charge of whether, deciding whether or not that this charging model is um, is is appropriate it, 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 it when it when it last looked at it at the back end of last year it um, it said that there are some pros of um, contingent charges and the fact that people with smaller pots might be easier able to access advice because of the costs involved and there were some potential negatives in that the advisor may have um, an incentive to move someone when it might not be in their best interest but they very much stayed on the fence on this now with the work and pensions committee who can be quite influential in this sphere because they're saying they think this is bad and they're looking to get some evidence that contingent charging leads to poor outcomes now if they keep on the fca's back on this then the fca may come back to it and decide that contingent charging simply is something that it doesn't want to allow to happen but there's no indication that that's going to happen yet so it's going to be very much a a watch and watch and see but for i think for anyone who's taking financial advice the, the charging method in a way is um, it's a bit of a red herring. If you're going to take financial advice, the main thing is to do your due diligence on your advisor, just as you would do with an investment. Make sure you know exactly what you're paying and why you're paying it. Um, and then make sure you know what you want to do with your money as well. And I think one of the one of my big frustrations sometimes is because because people do have to take this advice before they move from a DB scheme and it can be annoying for them. I think sometimes people are tempted just to ignore what the advisor says and not listen and just go, I want to move my money, I want to move my money. But if you're paying somebody, you know, a thousand pounds, fifteen hundred quid, or you're going to pay them if you transfer over anyways, that money's gonna come from you one way or another, if you'd certainly if you transfer, um, then you should listen to what they've got to say. And if somebody if a if a if a regulated professional advisor comes back to you and says, don't move your defined benefit scheme because of X reason, Y reason, Z reason, then you should really take that into account before just ploughing ahead. Okay. So we're going to now talk about cashback websites, um, and in particular one that lets you funnel money into a savings account for your child. So Laura, have you, are you a person who... Um, does all your shopping online and gets nice cash back when you're doing it? Or I is actually this don't. You? I don't use cash back websites. I think I've used them mm. once or twice before, but I, having done lots of research into them, I'm now going to use them. Mm. Another right resolution for 2019. Um, so for those that haven't used them and don't really know what they are, um, these websites basically pay you if you use a link on their website to click through and buy something online. So if you're going to do your shopping online um, on online retailers or from some of the big department stores, you can get cash back by just clicking on links through these websites. So you have to set up an account with them um, and then you click through these links and you can get the amount you get really varies. You can typically get about 6% back off some of the big department stores um, and you can also get cash back on contracts so things like mobile phone contracts broadband contracts or insurance um, so one example I found is that you get 50 pound back for home insurance with Aviva so this is so how, this is funded because um, the say it's Aviva the, the, there is a cost for them to attract a new customer so they, they would look at the, the amount of money they would spend on advertising or something so um, the money that 
essentially that they would normally use in, in their marketing pot per customer, they give that to the cashback website, don't they? And the cashback website then passes a bit of that on to you. That, is that the model, isn't it? Yeah, so they're called kind of affiliate links. And one of the biggest examples of this, not where you get cashback, but is Money Saving Expert, which loads of people use. Um, they use affiliate links in their site. So when you click on um, recommendations and things from them and click through to buy that, um, that's how Money Saving Expert makes its money. And it's very transparent about that. But the, the way the cashback sites are using this is rather than them using that as a revenue generator, they're passing all or some of that money back to yourself. So if you're buying things online anyway, it's kind of money for nothing. Although obviously there's a certain amount of kind of hassle or additional time involved in setting up the account and making sure that you're using the right links. And also, I guess some of the things like insurance, um, you know, offering you £50 if you take this policy. Um, I guess the question is, is that policy right for you? And actually, uh, I guess if you, if you shop around, um, perhaps you could find a better deal that suits your needs. So it, 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 it isn't all, all sort of perfect magic, isn't it? So mm-hmm. it's, it's, no, exactly. And I, so I think there's a certain, like few certain rules that you should look out for if you're going to use these cashback sites. The first one is that the cashback site you sign up to should be free. There are some out there that try and charge you, but there are enough big free ones out there that you should just avoid those ones that try and charge you any setup costs. Um, the other thing is that there can be time delays or problems with getting your cash back money. So sometimes the links the links aren't 100% foolproof. And so sometimes it won't recognize that you've been directed through that way. So you might not get the money. Or there have been definite instances of the smaller cash back websites um, folding, not making enough money and you not getting your money um, before they do. So you should never buy something for the cash back. You should always search around, get the best deal. And then as a last check, if you can get an, a, a cash back link, for that item then do it um another tip is also that if you quite often for you to be able to cash out so take your money out of the cashback account and, and put it into your own personal account um quite often they require a monetary limit so you need to have 10 20 50 pounds or whatever built up into your account but once you've reached that limit you should cash out straight away because of those instances where companies have folded and if your money's still in that account then that goes with them and you're unlikely to be able to get it back yeah, I mean, I, I've been doing it for, I don't know, four, four or five years because I had a colleague who told me about it and it sounded pretty good. I think I've made um, more than £600. Yeah, which is um, really which is, good. Which is pretty good. And I don't, you know, don't do all my shopping through it. Um, and I've had, exa- I've had experiences where I've not had anything. I bought, a, like, Halfords is... Um, a, terrible experiences with them i bought a bike online but you go to pick it up in the store once they built it um and they've got problems with their it systems they couldn't recognize it they said it's fine i'll just rerun it um through the till and then because it doesn't recognize you as having been coming through a cashback website so you lose your money there but i I guess you just get used to these things like you should think of it as a bonus shouldn't you yeah Uh, not, not a guaranteed thing to happen it's just a nice thing to happen um the one thing that i have found is that uh, not all big retailers are on there or the retailers constantly change. Um, so Amazon is the one that perhaps everyone, you know, well, not everyone, but a, a very large amount of people in this country and around the world use Amazon to, to do their shopping. Uh, but you don't really see it on these cashback websites. But I have found one, which is Kids Start. Um, so this is, this is an example of 
uh, it's slightly different because the money that you get um, has to go into a child's savings account. Um, so it's not something that you can personally benefit from. But it's quite, I think it's quite a neat way of doing it. So if, you, if you're thinking, like, I want to supplement every, my child's junior ISA, um, you can use this cashback website to start collecting from a range of retailers, including Amazon. It's not, um, and then the money can be linked to your junior ISA or a child trust fund. We can go into any bank or building society account that accepts um, electronic payments. Um, but obviously, there are lots of different um, cashback websites out there. We're not we're not endorsing any of them. I'm um, just saying it's quite an interesting place to look at if you're looking for sort of additional ways to make some money. Yeah, and that one I looked at, you can also um, rope in kind of family and friends to also save on your behalf. So you can save for your nieces or your nephews or your grandkids or your friends' kids as well. Um, and the m money could also go to a school or to other children's charities. But I think the point that you make there is good that not all cashback websites have the same um, cashback offers and so some will be able to negotiate better ones than others so if you have set up a couple of these accounts because they're free and so why not set up accounts with a few of them then kind of almost shop around a bit and see which one's got the best cashback for that transaction you're going to use the, the one i use i quite often do it for if i'm doing work traveling um you can get your train ticket through there now People think that say I'm going to be travelling on um, a certain line. I've only only able to use that. Say it's GWR. I can only use their website to buy tickets. So it's not mm. the case. You can use any train company in the whole of the UK to buy tickets anywhere. So. The, the cashback website I use constantly changes its train operators. So it doesn't really matter who you use. There will be one train operator on there. Um, and it's, I guess if you do a lot of work traveling, you can get hotels as well through it. It's, it's, yeah, it's a neat thing. And it has been around for some time. And the industry is consolidating. They're all sort of strength in numbers, buying each other and stuff. Um, but I sometimes often wonder whether it's something that's overlooked by people um, unless you're really savvy and constantly looking for bargains. Yeah, I think I've maybe previously dismissed it as a bit of a faff and too much hassle to do. But actually, if you can save decent amounts of money, then it's probably worth that extra couple of minutes of signing up and, and shopping around. So I think that covers all of our topics for this week. But before we wanted to go, as it's the first episode back of the new year, mm -hmm. I wanted to put you guys on the spot and ask what your financial resolutions are for the year. And I will be checking in at the end of the year to make sure that you've done them. <laughs> so, Dan, what are you planning on tackling? I think for me, it's building up um, a larger emergency cash pot. Um, we're quite often told that we need to put away three months of our earnings in case something goes wrong. Or, or I read the other, I think the other day, I read someone and said, actually, three months is not enough do six months and it kind of makes <laughs> me think oh god I better, I better um make a serious thought so that's that's my resolution this year and tom uh obviously use cashback websites yeah thanks um, you've learned all about them literally just written that down now i'm not even joking <laughs> um so i've got a couple of other ones so one as i mentioned earlier was to set up a small investment account with my partner to try and be a little bit more active and see just how good i am at picking scots scots stocks <laughs> <laughs> the fact i can't say it suggests i'm not Terrible gonna be very good um and the other the other thing um as i was thinking about this was um i think I, what i'm quite good at is um shopping around for the big stuff but i think i'm quite bad at keeping an eye on the small stuff so what's that the say the saying is look after the pennies and the pounds will look after themselves i quite i look after the pounds quite well but when it comes to lunchtime in london bridge i'll just go i'll go, I'll go out and sometimes i'll just be tempted to go to itsu or pret or something like that and then quite often I, w I won't check those little bits of spending that i'm doing even though i've got a monzo card or the card providers are available i've got a monzo card which should make make sure that i keep an eye on that stuff in reality i'm actually quite bad at that so this year i'm gonna 
properly keep an eye on those little bits of spending and it'll probably scare the life out of me, but then hopefully I'll reduce those little bits. Good ones, I like Thanks. it. And Laura, what are you going to do? Um, so mine is to finally consolidate all of my pension pots. I've um, got a few different pots with different employers. Tom will be very pleased about oh, this I'm one. very excited. Related. Yeah. Um, and I finally got around to opening a SIP last year and I transferred one of my old employer pots in and then I obviously ran out of steam and found other more exciting things to do. So this year <laughs> I'm actually going to definitely tackle that and put all my pensions in one place. I believe you found place. something more exciting to do than that. <laughs> that was my Christmas. <laughs> Well, thanks ever so much for listening. As ever, you can send your thoughts or ideas to podcast at ajbell.co.uk. See you next week. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. The podcast talks about various money issues. Just don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. You should also recognise that how an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future and that tax rules apply.